All right, we're in Ephesians, Ephesians 4. We've been continuing through the book, through our, uh, our isolation as we've been meeting on Zoom for those that have joined us. Uh, it's been a constant refreshing of the soul as we dive into this beautiful letter to a church that is much like our church today, when I talk about or our church in Australia and the, the Western countries. We'll see a bit more of that as we look at the culture of Ephesus and, and see how it, it matches uh, in some ways our culture today. Let's read the passage, take some time in silence to, to pray and ask the Spirit to move in our lives, and I'll pray and we'll, we'll unpack this, this verse by verse. Ephesians 4:17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, we lift your name on high. As we reflect on the book of Ephesians, we see in the first chapter that it's about the glory, the glory of God, your glory, to give you praise, to praise your glorious grace. Lord, we lift you up in our lives and, and, and Lord, ask that you would increase and that we would decrease Lord, as we need so much to come to your word this morning with humility, like little children coming before you, let our pride or arrogance or the fullness of ourself be cast aside, Lord, as we come to submit to your word and hear it taught. And Lord, like newborn babies, would we crave your word? Crave spiritual milk so that we may grow up in our salvation, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by every false teaching in this world, but, Lord, we would be firm, mature in our faith, one body with one mind, one Lord and Saviour Christ. Lord, let this word move in our souls, renew our minds as this word tells us to, renew our minds, Lord. Because we were created in the image of Christ, in the image of God, righteousness and holiness are our mark. 
Lord, help us to understand these beautiful truths as we unpack them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Am, am I even a Christian? Am I even a Christian? Has that ever crossed your mind before? The question that plagues as many of us who claim to be Christians, am I really a Christian? Am I actually saved? Maybe this question plagues your mind as you look at your life throughout the week and you start to think about the evil thoughts that go on and those thoughts start to turn into actions. And before you know it, you have or you feel like you've got no control over your mind or the flesh. One thing leads to another and it feels like your whole life is covered in sin. And then as you read the Bible and you flick through some of these passages, maybe as you read this passage today that tells us to put off the old self and put on the new and to not live like the world, the Gentiles, as we read about the pagans, the futility of their mind, the darkness of their understanding, the hardening of their heart, as we read this, do we sometimes feel like it's just heaping on more weight and more condemnation? Is that just me? Am I the only one that has ever felt like they're not a Christian? Like they don't belong in the church? Like they have just too much sin and the word just keeps feeling like it's adding more weight to them? And we say things like, oh, I can't do that. I'm not good enough for this. Oh, I keep doing this habitual sin in my life. I mustn't be a Christian. And the problem with all those statements is the word I. We keep adding in, I can't do this, I mustn't be a Christian. See, the human heart is full of itself. You're full of yourself and I'm full of myself. But brothers and sisters, remember from Galatians that we have died with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. It's no longer I who lives. The I doesn't remain. So the Christian doesn't go on saying, I can't do this. That's the truth. You can't do this, but you have died. And Christ now lives. And this is really what this passage is saying. So as we unpack this today, we're helping us come to understand what does it mean for us to die to our old self and live in Christ? So rather than reading passages like this or other passages in Scripture and going, I can't do this, we come to the place where we go, but Christ can and Christ has. As I read this, I went through a journey of feeling the weight of going, but I, I always feel like my old self is winning. I always feel like my old self is covering me. And by Friday, when I sat down to write this, I realized that this passage is all about freedom. And we will understand more of that freedom as we unpack this passage. This does not put weight on us to do more or to be better or to be good, but rather sets us free in the power of Christ. So I pray and I hope that by the end of this, you don't walk out of here feeling the weight of sin and guilt and shame, but rather set free in the freedom of Christ and the work of Christ. So verse by verse, as we usually do, verse 17, Paul continues in his teaching 
and continues in the urging of the church to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. We see that at the start of chapter 3, this transition in the writing. 1 to 3 is all about our our identity in Christ, who we are because of what Christ has done. 4 to 6 is about our duty, the way we ought to live because of what He has done. So urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, He's gone on to speak about unity in the church that we are all meant to be united in Christ, that we are all gifted by the grace of God, and we are all there to serve one another and build each other up. And now we go continuing on the unity path, but moving into more the way our life looks. And we're going to see that unfold over the next few weeks. Verse 17, Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. What we need to understand is that there is a clear divide between the church and the world. There's a clear divide between the person who is a Christian, and Paul uses the term in Christ more than he uses the term Christian, that we are different to the world that we stand out against the world. We don't copy the world. We don't look like the world. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that they are actually incompatible. They don't work together. The world and the church aren't functioning well together. What do I mean by the world? I mean the way they live, the things they value, the, the, the priorities they have in their life. We don't have those same priorities. So what Paul starts to teach here. And he testifies in the Lord. So he's putting weight on this statement. I say this in Christ. You must not walk like the Gentiles. So he's saying, walk in a manner, at the start of chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of your identity in Christ. And now he says, and this does not look like the Gentiles. Now let's explain what the Gentiles are. Because remember, in this church, Ephesus, there's Gentiles. So he's almost being offensive. He's got Gentiles in the church and he says straight out, don't walk like them. Right? But he's already clarified, clarified that we are no longer Gentiles or Jews, but rather one in Christ. We are one new nation. So he's already said, put away your Gentile status, put away your Jewish status and be new in Christ, be different. So when he speaks of the Gentiles, we could change this word to the world or pagan. And we've got this clear distinction. So the Jews were those who followed one God all throughout the Old Testament. They were the followers of one God. And the Gentiles, we see in Thessalonians 4, 5, the Gentiles do not know God. So a simple definition of the Gentile world or the the world as we know it, pagan people, is that they do not know God. And that is the major difference that he is making between the church and the Gentiles. So when he says, do not walk like the Gentiles, or no longer walk like the Gentiles, what he wants us to say is because we know, what what he wants us to understand is because we know God, we no longer walk, because we know God, we no longer walk like the world walks. We no longer walk like someone who doesn't know God. Because, God, because we know God, we walk in a different manner of life. And he goes on to say, uh, before we get there, and, and if we look at the, 
the culture of Ephesian, uh, Ephesus, where the Ephesian church was, Ephesus, we look at this world that is much like ours the same, uh, much like ours today. Uh, a, a culture of idolatry, that's false worship. Now, in those days, it was really obvious. They had statues that you'd bow down to and give sacrifices to. Pretty obvious to tell what they're worshipping. In our days, it's less easy to tell. We don't have a statue hanging around uh, that everyone goes to worship. In fact, it's, it's sometimes really hard to tell what people worship. What we see people worshipping is often what they're giving their time, their resources, their energy to. That is their object of worship. What do we put at the top of our priority list? What do we give our finances to? What do we give our time to? What do we give our, uh, our energy to? They're the, they're the important things to identify what it is we worship. The other mark of this culture was it was an essential uh, a, a culture. It was a very sexualized culture. We see even their gods that they worshipped were often naked. And they had images of these gods and they were in all sorts of uh, sinful relationships with plenty of uh, uh, things that we, we would see in our culture today. If we marked this culture by a few, uh, three different words, it would be success, pleasure and comfort. The, the culture of Ephesus was about success, being the best at whatever you were into, seeking out all the pleasure you could and having comfort. If they aren't the same three words we describe our culture today, particularly in Australia, I don't know what you would use. Success, pleasure, and comfort. When I look around at the people in this world, they would be the three words I would use to say that's what we pursue. And ultimately, the God that we worship is self. Success, it's for us. Pleasure is for us. And comfort is for us. So we've got the Gentiles, and Paul is saying, do not walk as the Gentiles, or do not walk as the world. And the world is a place of sexualized culture and idolatry. And he says, in the futility of their minds, one commentator said, in one word, in one word, this word futility, you capture the majority of the world. And he describes it as this. Aiming with silly methods at meaningless goals. A foolish method aiming at foolish goals. So what we read about this world, the Gentiles who we shouldn't walk like, are these people who are aiming at silly goals and they have lame methods to get there. So whatever their goal is, success, comfort, pleasure, it's a dumb goal. And their way they're getting there, well, they're not doing a very good job of it. And we see this in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you go back to the Old Testament, we have uh, Solomon, the king of Israel, the most powerful man, rich man. He had everything. I don't think anyone in the whole world has had as much as Solomon had. And he came to the conclusion that no matter how much pleasure you seek, you're never satisfied. You always want more. And everything always fades. So something that gave you pleasure at first eventually no longer gives you pleasure. No matter how much comfort you have, you always want more comfort. Now, Solomon got to a point where he had servants for his servants. That is serious comfort. He did nothing for himself. 
He just sat back and enjoyed whatever he wanted to enjoy. And he still found it to be meaningless. And if it's success that we're looking for, well, Solomon was the most successful man throughout all of history. He built not gardens, but forests. He had dams to water his forests. This guy was incredibly successful. He built cities and temples and his home was a mansion. This guy was successful. And in the end, he says, no matter how intelligent, no, how, no matter how successful, it sucks because we still die and all our stuff goes to someone else. That was his conclusion. Meaningless goals with foolish Foolish methods to get there. Meaningless goals with foolish methods to get there. That is what it means to be futile in our mind. So we see this world that we no longer are meant to work like, walk like, the Gentile world who have these goals in their life, these aspirations in their life, and, and they're, they're going to end up as nothing. Because in the end, all die. In the end, they will not achieve what they ultimately want to achieve. achieve. Verse 18 continues unpacking the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He's not giving the Gentiles a good picture. He's not painting the world in a good light. And we've got to really rephrase that word for us to really grasp it. We need to add, like, add the world to the Gentiles. Every non-believer out there is in this category of Gentile. So make sure that's, that's what you're thinking about when I, whenever I say the word Gentile in this particular passage. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. As he expands on it, he's saying they're darkened. They do not understand truth. No matter how intelligent these people think they are, they don't understand truth. And he, he states this in Corinthians when he says that the cross, Jesus on the cross, is foolishness to the Gentile. It's foolishness to the world. What they see when they look at Jesus is, this is ridiculous. How can someone come and die for me? I don't understand that. They don't grasp it because they're darkened in their understanding. The most intelligent people in the world will come to a place where they either say it's beyond understanding or it's not true. Atheism and agnosticism. It's beyond understanding. We can't know God. We don't understand it, so we won't even try. Or it's not true. It's foolishness to them. And it's because they're actually darkened in their understanding. They can't comprehend truth. They're alienated from the life of God separated from the life of God. Because of their inability to comprehend truth, because they can't grasp Christ, therefore they're separated from the life of God. We are not. The church is with God. They know God because of Christ. So the opposite of us is the people who are separate from God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. We get this image in Ezekiel 36, 26, that we all have a heart of stone. 
And our heart of stone has no way of comprehending God and his uh, beautiful design for this world. It has no way of uh, understanding how Christ could die for us and raise to life. But it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see this beautiful statement throughout Ezekiel 36 as God says, I, I will put my spirit in you. I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And every time over these Five or six verses, God says, I, it has nothing to do with us. So the Gentile world or the world as we know it, the non-believers in our world are so ignorant, their hardness of heart, just as we were before Christ came on us. Verse 19, they have become callous. And have been given up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is a really interesting verse to hit us with, but callous, we all, or most of us would know if you've ever spent time on a shovel or a pick, what a callous ends up becoming. You have a toughened bit of skin on your hands. Uh, We see now Paul is using this for the heart. So repetition of hearing the Word of God over and over again or repetition of hearing about God's great design for this world has made their heart even harder. It's caused a callous to form on it. We know that the Word of God either pierces through someone's heart or can harden them. Some people will hear the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, and will continue to be hardened. Isn't that a hard thing to hear? They'll continue to come up with new arguments to fight against it. They'll continue to be be more aggressive towards the gospel and maybe they will start pushing harder and harder until maybe God will save them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Calloused. Their heart is calloused. And have given themselves up to sensuality. Isn't this an interesting statement? Any sin Paul could have used. Why did he use sensuality here? Why was it about the sexualization of the culture that, that Paul states is one of the greatest rejections of God's design? This is a really important uh, a doctrine, belief to understand as to why, why it is that when humans rebel against God, they rebel in a a central way, a sexualized way. Let's unpack this a bit more as we come to understand uh, the wider view of, of, of the uh, gospel. What we see in creation is that God created everything with a design and a purpose. So when we see Paul talking about the world and worldliness or the Gentiles and giving themselves up to sensuality, they're actually turning away from God's design. And this is why Paul uses this. Because sensuality is a direct rebellion or rejection of God as creator and designer. He created the whole world in direct, uh, with everything to happen in its place and have its function. Let's just look at relationships. In Genesis 1, he created male and female. And he created male and female to have different roles. And he created men to be masculine and women to be feminine. And they were good, perfect gifts to the world, to each other. And they were to complement one another. Yet our world says, 
men should be less masculine and femininity should be worshipped. Our world has rejected these statements. So when we see that the world has given away or given themselves over to sensuality, they've actually rejected God's design. We can push further on the image. Rather than being one man and one woman entering into a covenant marriage, we have relationships where there is no covenant, no promises. We chop and change and choose who our partner will be for the next three or four years or less. One night stands a part of our culture, a direct rejection of God's design, giving themselves up to sensuality. No longer do we see that male and female are meant to enter into a marriage, but men and men, women and women can now enter into God's intermarriage. A complete rejection of God's design that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now what we see about a culture that hands themselves over to sensuality, as it says in this passage, we actually see this as a punishment from God. Romans 1 tells us that because of the hardness of heart in the humans, God handed them over to the lust of their heart. How often do we think that a punishment for us is God handing us over to the lusts of our heart? Not very often. I've heard in the last six months that, it's, uh, that the fires have been a punishment on our culture, that COVID's a punishment, the floods or the drought is a punishment. Maybe they are. But the greater punishment and the one that is happening in our midst is that the world is being handed over to the desires, to the desires of their heart, to the lusts of their heart. So men gave up normal relationships with women to have relationships with one another. That's what Romans 1 tells us. They turned into a sexualized culture. They rejected the great designer God and they have gone off on their own way saying, we know better. And God says, go for it. See where it will get you. You will be undone. We see the turning away in our culture because the greatest and biggest, one of the biggest TV industries or media industries is the porn industry making $5 billion a year. We see it that marriage is no more significant anymore. You can get out of it as easy as you got into it. And we see it because we don't value men as men and women as women. We make them have to act differently. So when we look at this world, a calloused world who's hardening their heart to the word of God and handing themselves over to sensuality, they're also greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Man, this is bleak. Bleak. This world is greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In other words, they're never content. Even the sinfulness that they're in right now, they're not happy with. They need more of it. So who knows where our world will go? Who knows how much more callousing it will take for them to continually hand themselves over to the lusts of their heart. They're not satisfied. The world, the way we aren't meant to walk, their standards are wrong, their motives are wrong, their aims are wrong. Its way was sinful, deceitful, corrupt, empty and destructive. Destructive. 
The world's way is destructive and it's against God's design. So when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, he's saying, do not look like the world. Look different to the world. The unregenerate person, that's the unsaved person, plans and resolves everything on the basis of their own thinking. He becomes his own ultimate authority and he follows his own thinking to his ultimate outcome of futility, aimlessness and meaninglessness to the self-centered emptiness that categorizes our age. That is what we see. We cannot be listening to our own thinking and becoming our own authority. And now we see the contrast from that to who we are. If you truly are a believer. Verse 20. But that, what we've all just read, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Before we came to Christ, our minds, feelings, actions were bleak. This is who we were. This is who we were in, in that category of people, calloused hearts, darkened in our understanding, futility of mind, aiming for aimless things, pointless things, with dumb motives to get there. That is who we were. But that is not who we are now, if you have learned Christ. We, we need to be really careful when we preach at church that we aren't luring people into a false security. I always talk because I'm, I'm speaking to believers. Primarily, that's who I believe I'm speaking to on Sunday. So often I refer to us all as believers or saying, this is you. But we should always examine our own hearts as well. Is this me? Am I in Christ? Have I learned Christ? Now we're going to unpack that statement, learned Christ. Why does Paul say, but this is not the way you learned Christ? It's a weird way of phrasing things. The way he's wording this is to, to teach us that we're, we're not entering into a system of beliefs. We're not just going into some religious routine, habitual following of prayers that we pray, readings that we read, uh, attendance of church and attendance of a Bible study. We're not entering into some religious tradition. We're entering into a, a person, our creator, our designer. You learned Christ. You didn't learn Christianity. You didn't learn Christianity, you learnt a person, you learnt Jesus Christ, who is God, was with the Father and the Spirit in the beginning, before anything else was. You learned Christ. You came to know a person. Gentiles, the world, doesn't know God, therefore they don't know Christ. You cannot know God without knowing Christ. So we've got the Gentiles, the world, who don't know Christ, and we've got us, the Christians, who have learned Christ. And in learning about Christ, we've learned about his way of life. Knowing the designer means knowing his design and understanding his way. We do not have a distant God who's barking out do's and don'ts. We have a loving God who has become like us, lived among us, lived in obedience to him, and live different to the world. That's the God we have. 
A God not barking out orders, but a God who has been with us. A God who has shown us how to live different to the world. If we look at Jesus, he wasn't exactly friends with the world. He was friends with sinners. He wasn't friends with the world. He didn't look like them. He didn't copy them. While they were engaging in their sin, he didn't go along with them. Jesus lived different to the world. And we have learnt Christ. We have learnt this designer, this person. Now Paul adds in a warning here. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus. This is, this is a warning for us. And we should not just brush over this, but actually think, have I learnt Christ? Have I learnt Christ? And the follow-up question is, if I have learnt Christ... How do I know I've learnt Christ? You know, when we're discipling people, we can get into... Discipling means helping people understand Christ so that they can become more like Christ. When we're teaching people, we can get into a dangerous habit of telling people they're saved. We should never tell someone they're saved. We should only tell them how to be saved and then point them to the Scriptures that help affirm their salvation. We should, never, we should never claim, just because we know their life, people are deceitful. Just because we've seen all these things take place in their life, we should say, we should never be like, yes, you're absolutely saved. We don't know. We have no idea the heart of man. But we can point people to the Scriptures and help them come to a place where they can feel confident in Christ, not in themselves, in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that they are saved. So have you learned Christ? And how can I know if I have learned Christ? The difference is in verse 22 to the end of this passage. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, So to put off your old self. Now this sounds like it's a command for us to do. That you go and put off your old self. Guys, go and put off your old self. But but we just looked at a pretty bleak picture of the Gentile world, the, the world as we know it, people in this world. That's not possible. Friends, you can't change your heart. If your heart is calloused or stone, you can't do that and you can't put off your old self. So it's not a command to put off your old self, but rather in Christ dying on the cross and raising from the dead, he put off your old self. Galatians, that passage we read at the start, you died with Christ. Your old self died with Christ and Christ lives in you. So what we see is not two persons blended together, but rather one person who's in Christ and has some old ruddy garments with them still. We are still in the flesh, that is the problem. We're still in the sinful body, that is the problem. But our soul, who we are as a person, has been renewed and is being renewed. That is the new person. So when we see, put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and is corrupt with deceitful desires, Christ has done that. There's freedom in that. So what we come to in this passage is rather a reminder that I have been put off. Christ has thrown me off. I'm now new in Christ. The old body still remains and the flesh is still there. So there's evidence that I was from that life. But really, my newness is inward. Let me give you an image, a metaphor I I found. Many 
missionaries overseas in places of immense poverty have places where you can come and shower uh, and get really cleaned up and they give you new clothes. So what we see is a guy comes in and he's ratty clothes and he's got infections all over his body and he's cut all up and has heaps of wounds and he comes in and they fumigate him, they clean him and they take the old clothes and they throw them out and burn them. And they provide this man with clean clothes. This is a picture of salvation. Except that in salvation, the new believer is not simply given a bath, but a completely new nature. The continuing need of the Christian life is to keep discarding and burning the remnants of the old sinful clothes. It's not to keep putting ourselves off. That's happened. We've been renewed, we've been made clean. It's, it's just throwing away the old habits, the old desires that occasionally come up. It's like throwing off the old clothes and putting on new clothes. That's what it means that we are now dead to ourselves and alive in Christ. One of the first things a Christian should learn is that they cannot trust their own thoughts or desires. They can't rely on their own way. When you first are growing in the faith and understanding who you are, we need to learn that we can't trust what goes on in our head, in our heart. In verse 23, it says, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we cannot listen to our heart, we must teach our heart. We can't listen to what our body says, what desire, the desires come our way. We have to teach it. We have to tell it what it should believe. So when I look at this scripture, say it was Monday, Tuesday last week, and I'm reading this going, oh man, my old self's killing me. I can't put it off. I keep sinning. My thoughts are evil. My habits are evil. Man, I mustn't be a Christian. Instead of reading it like that, I say, I have put off the old self. Well, Christ has put off the old self. He has put to death my old self. He has become, brought newness to my life. And how can I know this? Because my ultimate desire, my ultimate end in my life is no longer for myself, but for Christ. Your daily habits of sin, your evil thoughts that go on in your mind, do not, do not affect, do not affect your salvation because your ultimate desire in the end, your ultimate end, your ultimate direction for your life is away from sin. That is the difference between those who are Christians and those who aren't. We have a different end in mind. A different end in mind. It's not a, it's not a matter of our sin in our daily life. We're seeing that weed out as we grow in our faith. It slowly fades away. But what is your ultimate end? This is how we test it. This is how we teach our mind. This is how we find out, have I learnt Christ? We come back to the Word and we say, my ultimate end is to be like Christ. That is what I ultimately desire. I may have had a terrible day of constant swearing, yelling, I don't know what you did. You may have had a terrible day, but at the end of that day, do you sit there and say, all I want is to be like Christ. All I want is to be like the one who died for me and rose from the dead. All I want is to be righteous and holy like my Saviour. Is that your desire in the end? 
I'd like to just say that our desires do come and go. Be careful with your mind because sometimes our desire does flick back to being worldly and wanting all the things of this world. And that's when we go to verse 23 and it reminds us to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We keep saying doctrine matters lately in this teaching. Doctrine is a set of beliefs. What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about the way he designed the world? It's all written down for us. And the renewing of our mind takes place through word and prayer. Guys, I can guarantee you, if you have the spirit in you, I can guarantee you that as you read the word and as you let the word dictate your prayers and change the way you pray, your desires will change in your life if the spirit is present. You will start to grow to see the joy of the Lord and have more love for the Lord and less love for the world. To be renewed in our mind is to take on the teachings of God, to understand his design and to put away the world's design. And it happens through discipline. It happens through discipline. The most miserable person in the world is the one with the spirit in them, but is not feeding the spirit. Most miserable person in the world is a Christian who has the spirit in them, but they're just living in sinfulness and they're not feeding the word. You, you are so miserable. You can't enjoy the world because the spirit won't let you. And you're not enjoying God because you're not engaging in the Word. That is a miserable place to be. I've been there. I've been in that place. And I'd like to think that I'll never go back there, but who knows? We'll see. So the life of the redeemed sinner is one of slips and falls of many, uh, many times, but the determination of his life is always away from sin, is ultimately away from sin. Being in the new self means your ultimate end has changed, where you're heading overall has changed. So we're not walking like the world with our desires for success, pleasure and comfort, but we're walking like Christ, our desire for the glory of God and righteousness and holiness. And that's how this finishes. Putting on the new self, that's who we are. That is who we are. It's not something we can do. It's what Christ has done for us through the death and the resurrection. We remind ourselves daily, I am new. That's how we put on the new self. And I need that every morning. I'm that weak that every morning I wake up with like doubts and depression and feeling crap about the day ahead. And every morning, sitting there, standing there in the shower, driving to, to the office saying, I am new in Christ. I am new in Christ. I've been created new in Christ. Reminding my soul, reminding my heart that I am in Christ. That is what we need to do. Created. Here we go, back to Genesis 1. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what we were created for in the beginning, before sin entered into the world, to be created like God. In true righteousness and holiness. Now Christ has recreated us. Not only just recreated us, but given us the power to do so. The Holy Spirit. The old clothes, the old clothes of the old self still cling and stick around. But our daily need is to cover our heart and mind in prayer. 
to remember who we really are, that we are created in the likeness of God. That's who you are. And in the end, our habits turn away from saying things about what you can do or what I can do, and rather we say we can do this or Christ has done this. And I might not be able to walk in this, but Christ can walk in that, and Christ has walked in that, and I am in Christ. Our language changes away from the I statements to the Christ statements. Christ has and Christ can. And I'm in Christ. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it breathes life into our souls. I thank you that you have put off the old self. And Lord, as you give us this bleak image of the old self in this passage of the world, those who are outside of your kingdom, who have different motives and actions and in the end an ultimate end for themselves. Lord, you've changed us. We've learnt Christ. We've learnt from your Son. We know who he is, the designer of all things. And we want to know him more and we want to grow in him more. But Lord, oh, how much we need your Spirit How much we need your spirit to help us, Lord, to teach our heart and our mind. Lord, I pray that we would not listen to our heart and mind, but rather teach it. Each morning, each moment, knowing, Lord, that that it is not a great place to be outside of your word. Lord, our old self has been put off, but the body and the flesh remain. The old clothes, the old garments remain. Lord, they, they creep in and disrupt our lives. Lord, give us strength to throw those old clothes off and to put on Christ. His actions, his desires, his motives, his walk, his way of life, his end to bring glory to your name. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.